In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit SIFT.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. Hey everyone, this is Bradley Chalevsky, co-founder and editor-in-chief at MerchantFraudJournal.com. And this week on the podcast, we have Melissa Salise, head of Gaiac Systems, and Brett Peterson, executive vice president of sales and client relations at Gaiac. They're going to be talking to us about a new report Gaiac released on the subject of account takeover fraud. This is an extremely important topic for merchants to be informed about. It's one of the most important vectors that fraudsters are using today to attack merchants, and Gaiac released a wonderful report taking a deep dive into this topic and we were very excited to have melissa and brett on the podcast to discuss it so thank you melissa thank you brett hope you guys all enjoy the episode and as always you can get the latest merchant fraud tips and tricks at merchantfraudjournal.com and we're live hey everyone thanks for joining how are you guys great how are you doing we're doing good thank you for we're having doing- us today of course, my pleasure. So I'll get all the good stuff out of the way, let you guys introduce yourself, who you are from, who you represent, what you're here for, and then we'll get into it. No, absolutely. So I am Melissa Solis. I am the head of Gaiac Systems, which is a uh, owned by London Stock Exchange. And I'm Brett Peterson. I'm the EVP of sales and client relations at Gaiac. Awesome. So you guys are here because we at Merchant Fraud read an amazing report that you put out on account takeover fraud, which is a huge topic right now in the community. Lots of people getting hit with this. It's extremely lucrative business right now for fraudsters, and we're seeing huge, huge upticks in these types of attacks and the damage that they're doing to people. So I want to start off by getting a quick overview of what you guys found in that report that you can tell merchants right off the bat that they will find useful in preventing their own fraud prevention or or honing their own fraud prevention techniques. And then we'll jump in to some more stories. Well, I think one of, there were several things that really stood out to me personally, and I think Brett can jump in here and add some too, but when you look at the report and see that 47% of US consumers experience financial identity theft Uh, where someone actually had an application fraud in their name or account takeover in the past two years, that is crazy. I mean, that's nearly half of consumers in the U.S. And then also, um, you know, when you look at 38% of the U.S. consumers experience account takeover uh, in the past two years, I mean, those are staggering percentages. Yeah, so let's face it. I mean, the fraudsters had a a banner year uh, last year with covid the stimulus speed to deliver uncertainty with that. There was accelerated move to a complete digital buying and payment experiences. Uh, and then the fraudsters were able to exploit the, the vulnerabilities of uh, you know, existing fraud protection tools. Um, 
And it's all being driven, right? Everyone wants things faster uh, digitally and so forth. And the fraudsters have just evolved. They've gotten way, way better at detecting and finding holes in, in an onboarding process or in a payment process. It's definitely a huge problem that we've heard about. So I want to get into a couple of the angles here with what you talked about. One of the things that I've always wanted to ask people who deal with this type of fraud every day is how the psychological impact affects merchants. This is something that I'm super interested in in learning about and hearing how you guys coach up or help people that are suffering this type of fraud because we talk a lot about how chargebacks are seen as theft. They're particularly painful. That's why there's a lot more focus on them than there is on friendly fraud, even though dollar for dollar friendly fraud is usually an actually uh, an actual larger revenue killer. Here you're getting into entirely new realms of invading people's privacy and taking over accounts and fully full on representing people uh, falsely. And I have to believe that when merchants get this kind of information, it could be really jarring to them to think that some of the customers that they think that they're servicing are actually people that are out to harm their business, as well as the people that are coming to their business as honest consumers. And knowing how important those relationships are to small business owners especially, but medium and enterprise level customers as well. I'm curious what kind of stories you guys have about dealing with this type of fraud on an emotional and personal level with the people that actually experience it. Well, first of all, um, I think, you know, reputational risk is huge. And I think that that's one thing that companies are realizing. It's not just about the financial loss. It's about how people think about you because consumers are now becoming more and more educated and they're understanding that you have a responsibility to keep their information uh, safe, but also you have a responsibility to make sure you're dealing with the right person. And when you think about the fact in this uh, this report that we did, the study, that 30% of consumers reported it took them over 100 hours to recover from this identity theft incident. And the fact that 12% to 13% of consumers are unlikely to do future business with a financial institution or a company when they've allowed fraud. And, and there's some other percentages, I think, that are interesting. But consumers now expect companies to take the necessary steps to make sure they're dealing with the right person. And I'll tell you a personal experience. So I was sitting in my office a few years back and I received a phone call and it was from a a department store. Um, And they said, hi, uh, this is, you know, Mary from this department store and who am I speaking with? And I gave her my name and she said, well, um, I wanted to verify that you just tried to open an account. And I was like, no, where are you at? And she was sitting in Atlanta, or excuse me, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, yes. And so I said, no, I'm sitting in Dallas, Texas. Well, what was crazy was, is the, the fraud and risk tools that they had in place was not what stopped the fraud. It was a clerk who had a weird feeling because you know, they, they opened a card with my information, passed all the fraud and risk checks and balances, but the person who was fraudulently opening it was basically maxing out the approved amount. And so the lady said, man, something's not right. 
she stepped away and took the extra step to give my information to call me or unless someone would have literally purchased thousands of dollars with the merchandise and walked out of the store. I will tell you that it took me almost six months to get that off my credit. It took multiple times uh, reaching out to the credit bureaus. It took multiple times talking to that uh, department store to get that done. And I'm educated. I know how the systems work. <laughs> right, but imagine right. a consumer Imagine a consumer that doesn't know what to do. And so what's happening is as, you know, faster payments equals faster fraud. Um, I know that it's easy just to look at COVID and say, well, COVID's driving the fraud. And don't get me wrong. It has increased since COVID. But really what's happened is, like Brett said earlier, uh, what's driven is that more people are, are doing business, you know, mobily. Uh, through the internet on a mobile device or through your computer since you don't have that face-to-face -face interaction with COVID. And then also real-time payments has really pushed people uh, to make decisions in seconds. The problem is the fraud solutions in the marketplace have not moved at the same rapid speed of payments going, you know, we're faster. So we see an increase of fraud and people's solutions have not kept up with that. Yeah, and, right. and I would just add, if you think about it from a company standpoint, you ask kind of like how they're viewing this. There's a lot of frustration, I think, in, in, in this uh, field, uh, simply because there's this industry is very fragmented in terms of solutions that they can buy. And what that means is that, you know, there is no central source of truth for consumer identity that exists anywhere. So you have a lot of different companies that use a lot of different sources, mainly relying on, say, credit bureau data. Uh, and different flavors of, of that credit bureau data. Um, and, and the challenge with that is it, 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 it has created uh, uh, an even greater problem with synthetic identities, right? So they can, they can uh, scheme the, the credit bureau data uh, using some, can you, some real- Can you explain what synthetic, what synthetic identity is for people who might not know that are listening? Sure, so that a synthetic is when, when a fraudster will use some real information combine it with some fake information and create it a brand new profile. So they may steal a social security number. Uh, they may have uh, other uh, points of data. And what we find typically in this space is they want to, a fraudster wants to manipulate two pieces mainly, and that's the social security number and the email address. Because once they can do that and they can uh, successfully fill out an application, get approved, that's when they can now control the account and, and make changes to the account and so forth. So, and the problem with synthetic identities is that they're very hard to detect. And so a lot of companies don't even know they have a synthetic identity problem. They write it off as a credit loss, uh, but these are actually synthetics that have gotten through their onboarding system. So getting back to your earlier question, you know, what's, how are they feeling about this psychologically? It, it, they're, they're very frustrated, right? Cause you could have, uh, an onboarding platform, you could have a transaction monitoring system, you could be using predictive analytics, AI, you could be using all this. But if the data that's being fed into your system is is bad, you're, you're going to just have bad information throughout. Right. And I think the most shocking thing from that story is that at the end of the day, it's, as I put to one of our previous guests, the old fashioned MacGyver stuff that's finding these people, that it's a clerk sitting at a store desk going, this just doesn't feel right. I'm going to escalate this. And that to me continues to be one of the most incredible stories that threads through 
everything that we see right now with fraud prevention is that there's so much great investment in technology. And at the same time, there is still a lot of room for fraudsters to operate in the blind spots. And we see it time and time again. And the way that it was explained to me on this podcast was that there are actually almost two separate realms of fraud prevention. We interviewed an ex, an ex fraudster and he was saying that there are still things that you have to check that can't necessarily be automated. Things like checking that licenses have the proper state seals on them, that they're valid licenses or here where somebody comes and they I love the word that I use most, maxed out the proof. And a human is sitting there going, yeah, people don't usually do that. A computer would probably think that's great. It's checking 15 boxes when they only need three. Whereas a human goes, yeah, nobody nobody really takes the time to do that unless there's really, really something going on behind the scenes. And I just find that so fascinating. I'm wondering if you find that that adds to the sense of frustration when you come to people and they say, well... I just spent X dollars on this fraud prevention solution or multiple fraud prevention solutions. And you're telling me that it was a clerk that spotted this. <laughs> so what, what am I paying for at the end of the day? Well, I think that, and, and I, I'm going to let Brett jump in here in a minute, but I think it's, it's, it's a couple of things. One is, is fraud has moved as fast, if not faster than the movement that we've had in going mobile or, or faster payments, right? And taking things where it happens in real time. The problem is, is that a lot of the solutions out there have not, first of all, they're built on foundations that don't allow them to change with the speed of fraud. The fraud rings now, it's no longer where, you know, Jim Bob and his friends are in the basement hanging out committing fraud. These are well-funded fraudsters. They're smart. Uh, because of all the breaches, they have all the data in the world they need to, to, to commit fraud, to create synthetic identities. You have bureaus that are creating, um, you know, these the, the promoting this synthetic identity because they're actually creating identities that are then fed into the system based on inquiries. Um, you have companies that are providing data without verifying it, reporting it back into the bureau. So you've got all these things that are happening that basically, unless your fraud solution is really a solution that follows you from the time you come into the space through the complete life cycle and, and, and catching fraud does not start at the payment. It starts from the moment that you walk into that space and start doing business and having communication with the company. And that's where companies screw up. They wait until the transaction happens and then they want to start the fraud and risk uh, tools. It doesn't work. But, um, you know, the bottom line is, is you, the way you look at fraud and risk, the tools that you have, I think are super important. So, Brett, why don't you add a little bit to that? Yeah, I think, uh, Bradley, you mentioned blind spots. And to me, that really that really resonates, right? Because you talk to companies who have been using very large, well-known ID proofing companies, and they're still getting uh, hit with fraud. Um, I give example of that. So we did a, a proof of contest uh, a concept, a test, right? And we had a well-known company 
that um, had a fraud problem. And they wanted to run their data through our system just to see what we would have found on these known fraudsters. So they gave us 22 subjects. We found over 52 different flags. And it, was, and it wasn't because necessarily that the company they were using on the front end was bad. It didn't have enough da different data types. So we always talk uh, in terms of traditional and non-traditional data, right? So traditional data would be a credit bureau, would be utility files. It's, it's everything that, uh, what we call aggregated data that everybody's searching. We have the advantage that we have some non-traditional data and some privileged access, things like bank account information, different things that we can add to the mix. And so when we did that, we found 52 different potential flags and they would have not, they would not have onboarded those particular people had they seen some of those things. Um, you know, and, and it also goes back to the risk tolerance of the organization too, what you're willing to accept and not accept, right? But I think there's this feeling that uh, people have relaxed a little bit and if they get a score of an X percentage from an identity vendor, they don't worry about it and they just keep going. And right. and I think the numbers will back it up that we, we have an epidemic of, of synthetic identity fraud right now. It's the numbers are not just trending up, they're out of control. And I think it's because we, I don't think companies really pressure test their systems enough uh, on, on a yearly basis, a quarterly basis to find uh, potential fraud. So can you give me an example of some of the things that you're talking about when you say 52 data points that other people might not or other solutions might not have been looking at. Can you give me one or two or, or an idea of what you're looking at that's not being looked at <laughs> yeah, otherwise? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it could be as simple as a bank account uh, um, that maybe there's a bank account open and valid, but they, we, there's no way to prove that they're an owner of that bank account. Sometimes we can see it's a prepaid card. It's not an actual bank account. We can see addresses associated that maybe are a campground and our actual physical address. There's all sorts of different consumer alerts that come up on our identity data um, that really speak to the truth. So again, that guy, we don't really, we don't score data. We do it internally, but we, we provide a, a fact pattern. So rather than saying 78% sure that, that, that you are who you say you are, we're going to say, all right, we need to see different points of data align and corroborate the result here. And we're going to give you the fact uh, result of that. So we're going to tell you what it is that we found that matched, what didn't match. Then you can take that data, load it into your analytics platform and make decisioning based on an actual fact pattern. In fact, there's a really good, there's there's so many of these I can spend the rest of the day talking about them. But, you know, there was a, a Florida man that was sentenced to 37 months in prison for laundering more than $9 million on an account takeover scheme. And basically what he was doing is he was calling the company, impersonating a representative of one of the victim companies. So he would call up and say, listen, you know, I need to change my bank account information. Uh, and so they would verify some basic information and let him change the account. And then they would pay those invoices to the fraudulent account. Whereas if they were using our platform, one is they could have known that that particular account did not belong to that company, that the name did not match. So they would have never sent the updated the information and they would have not sent out $9 million uh, to a fraudulent account. And as soon as the funds were actually received, then you know they were obviously wired out to uh, Russia, Turkey, and Ukraine. You know, you look at, um, you know, that just came out for the SBA. I mean, when you look at that, you know, 1 million referrals for loan fraud for the PPP. And then you look at, 
you know, Froster siphoned over $100 million in COVID relief through online investment platforms. Again, when you have a comprehensive uh, solution that truly follows through the complete life cycle, and you can see the different picture, you might get around one of the mousetraps, but you're not getting around all of them, right? And so by having a, a solution that really evolves with the speed of fraud, that's how you win in these situations. Trying to piecemeal single point solutions or or companies that are not updating their solution to meet the times uh, of fraud and how it's moving right now, you're going to lose. And people will say, well, how do I know if it's true? Read the news. I mean, my God, every day it's it's story after story of how fraud is happening in our country. And, and there are solutions out there that are, you know, keeping up with what's happening that better aren't you to fight against those. But status quo doesn't work anymore. So I want to dive into two aspects of what you just said. The first one is I want the audience to be clear if you could state the difference between account takeovers of a consumer account and an account takeover corporate account, which is what you were just talking about. But we haven't made that distinction totally clear on this podcast. So I just want to make sure for anyone listening who's a little lost in the woods here, the difference between those two types of fraud. Sure, absolutely. So it really works quite quite simply the same. With a, with a corporate account, let's say if it's vendor management and I call up and, and you know I say that I'm with so-and-so company and you need to pay your invoice to my new bank account. So that company then changes it, sends the money to the fraudulent bank account, and now a company, you know, basically is is out that money if they're not able to recuperate it. And now fraud has been, you know, committed against them. The same holds true with an individual. A lot of times with account takeover, they'll go in and change an account with an investment company or something where you have funds, a real-time payment platform, a wallet, whatever it may be, go in, they'll change where the money are being forwarded. So they will go in, take over your account. A lot of time it's done through email. That's how it starts. Um, and they'll take over and send funds out before you realize that someone has taken over your account and sent funds. Right. So and again, I think that's the really big difference here is when you're talking about corporate accounts, this money can get siphoned off totally yeah. silently. And that's something that I don't think is understood enough. A consumer facing fraud attack in general, the business hears about it. If one of their consumers or or somebody got defrauded because somebody faked their identity, you're going to hear from either that consumer whose account was taken over within your system or somebody else who was fraudulently represented or had been fraudulently represented to your business. Those types of things eventually, more times than not, will end out in the open. Ironically, the thing that is I don't know if it's more damaging because the accumulative problems of having too many customers have poor experiences with your sites, as you mentioned, is extremely potent. But in terms of the absolute dollar value of any individual attack, when you're talking about a corporate takeover, you could literally lose tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars before you even realize that anything is wrong. And that's that's what's really scary. Yeah, it could be millions. I mean, we've heard cases of millions of dollars. In fact, Brett, why don't you share? Yeah, we had a uh, customer, and, that, and, and you really touched on it, that you know what's not being seen or uh, 
publicized as much as some of this vendor payment supplier fraud, right? And it's all account takeover. Uh, it's all the same, right? We had a customer, uh, they're, all, they're in the investment community and they, they found out that they were paying a non-existent vendor. Uh, wow. They were sending money to a bank. It took them before about $2 million by the time they figured it out. There's a lot of examples. And what we found last year, especially, is we had Fortune 500, Fortune 50 companies coming to us because they had a fraud incident. And what I found interesting from a sales perspective is that generally when you when you do business with a very large company, their procurement process is extremely slow. It takes a long time to get through. When they actually had a fraud uh, incident, it happens overnight. Uh, we had some very large companies that signed up for us. It took less than a week, uh, and I was shocked by that. But it, it just goes to show that when you have a problem like that, and, and who knows, in those particular examples, they wouldn't disclose how much money they sent to a fraudster, but I suspect it was quite a bit. Um, when I first started at this company, it was the University of Connecticut had their vendor management system hacked, and someone was able to reroute checks that were intended for Dell Computer to her personal bank account. Uh, and again, un- that would have been an easy solve for us. Yeah, no, it's it's unbelievable when you hear stories like that. I'm curious when you're dealing with these types of situations and you're you're dealing with professionals who are coming to you and you're in big Fortune 50 companies and what is the conversation like? This is kind of bringing my initial point full circle in that do these people feel angry? Do they feel embarrassed? I, I can't imagine that they feel indifferent because even if you're working at a fortune 50 company and you're as corporate as corporate can get and people are very professional and they're in some ways detached it's not a small mom and pop business that's this is their livelihood these are professionals getting paid to do a job it still has to be really really shocking and disconcerting and upsetting to people That's part one of our conversation with Melissa and Brett on account takeover fraud. Huge thank you to them for taking the time to come out and talk. We'll be releasing part two of the episode in the coming weeks. Make sure to catch that. You don't want to miss out on more of those great insights on an extremely relevant topic. Until then, take care, everyone.